Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. You really haven't much option, especially when you get old. You're there and you've got to stay where you put. It's not easy for either side. I think the thought of going to a rest home is horrifying and I totally understand my mother. I had grown up in homes where I, we had a great-grandmother living in the Lazy Boy and um, that's just how it was. That's just what you do. You look after your own. I'm Noelle McCarthy. This is A Wrinkle in Time. A Wrinkle in Time. A Wrinkle in Time. The age of people that are often in care at the moment are such an incredibly accepting group of whatever we give them. That's the risk. That's the risk at the moment. A podcast series about ageing in a world that wants us to stay young. When surveys have been done of older individuals, the thing many people fear the most is loss of independence. More than, they, more than people fear death. In the first episode of this series, Dr. James Kirkland from the Mayo Clinic in Minnesota explains how even though human longevity is increasing, the later years in life can still be tough, health-wise. Ageing is the single biggest risk factor for developing chronic diseases like cancer, arthritis and heart disease, all of which can leave us frail and in need of medical help. So who will take care of us when we can't take care of ourselves? And how much choice will we have in the matter once the time comes? According to a recent study out of the University of Auckland, older people are more likely to end up in residential care in New Zealand than in any other developed country. I mean, I was doing my nursing training in the mid-70s or late 70s and every hospital in New Zealand had um, geriatric wards. They had a lot of elders in them who'd been institutionalised sometimes for quite some time. Jill Woodward is the CEO of Elizabeth Knox Rest Home in Auckland. And in public hospitals, um, I think it was 70s and 80s, began to contract out their, um, their services or their care to, to older people, for, for older people out into the private sector. So I think that that's always been there. The numbers in residential care are increasing, but pretty much everyone I talked to who wasn't already in a rest home agreed that once they became old and frail, their preference would still be to live independently for as long as possible. And that was no less true for interviewees like Tess, who probably doesn't have to think about these things for a while yet. I've watched my, my grandmother, who's 95, and she's lived in, she still lives in her own home and she loves her life and her neighbours and her grandkids and has just lived a really rich life right up until now. Do you think that's important, being in your own home? I think living in your own space is so tied up with um, just being able to dictate your own routines and your own life. And so I think if you can separate out those things and you can still own your life in the same way in a different environment, that could be great. But um, often I think that is tied up with staying at home. I can't breathe. Hold my hand. 
about who will take care of you. Yeah. If you need that, when you need that. Mm -hmm. I've got mixed feelings around it. I mean, my, I'm going to live with my older daughter and her husband and family well when the kids are at home. But um, how do I feel about it? I feel grateful. Part of me feels easy. I'm not used to living with quite, you know, I mean, I'm used to sort of living my own life. And of course, it will be my own life. But um, I just want to stay open to it, really. I'm really grateful that I'm not being ghettoised. The way we care for the elderly has, has improved vastly in the last, even just the last five years. I think we need to have them around us more, which is more of the uh, nuclear family thing that used to happen in generations before. You know, we should all have a couple of old people sitting in the background in our lounge, you know, and they can be active looking after the kids or even stroking the cat or whatever. Wendell and Susie, now in their 50s and their 60s respectively, are both thinking about that extended family model of care that's the ideal for many of us. I had grown up in homes where I, we had a great-grandmother living in the Lazy Boy and um, that's just how it was. That's just what you do. You look after your own. And what culture is that? Uh, that that's my uh, mother's uh Family, uh, that's Pākehā, uh, it's a Mormon culture, I guess, they're Mormon people. Um, I wouldn't exclusively describe them that way. Um, but my father's family is Māori and they would probably take the same attitude towards um, keeping people at home as long as you can. Talia lives in Dunedin. Her experience of helping to look after her grandfather before he died had a profound impact on her. He wanted to stay at home for as long as he could. But what happens when we need the help of others to do that, when we're dependent on family or help from the state in order to spend those last years when we're most frail in our own homes? I think Māori in the city certainly aspire to look after our elderly. We, we want to look after them, we want to be there for them, we want to revere them and respect them. Uh, the challenge is how to do that, how to do that in a very busy in a very challenging uh, environment. Dr Hirani Ka lectures in history and theology at the University of Auckland. An ordained Anglican priest, he's also worked for his iwi and his community in various capacities. He sees firsthand the pressures of caring. And often there's a sense of guilt amongst Māori uh, around being unable to do this. So, you know, putting your... Uh, loved ones, your elderly ones into a rest home, for example, really still feels like nails on the blackboard, um, but is becoming more and more common because it's the reality we're facing. Housing's a, a huge issue for our for our elderly. Again, they are the marginalised amongst marginalised communities. So, we have our Kaumatsu living in caravan parks. I've been to visit them. It's terrible. Not uninsulated caravans in winter. You know, on top of their age, it's just a recipe for really tragic outcomes. Our housing crisis has gotten a lot of coverage in recent months. As one of the most vulnerable groups in society, older people are suffering. But care can be a struggle even for families who are materially better off. It was a privilege to give back some of the love that they'd given us yeah. over the years, and um, it was really stressful. Janet's in her early 60s. She lives in Auckland with her partner and one grown-up son. She and her younger sister shared the care of both of their parents before they died. My father went into hospital for elective surgery, supposedly for two weeks. And when he went to hospital, we realised mum needed support at home, couldn't be left alone, and dad didn't leave hospital. 
So he was in there for three months, so we were basically caring for both parents. Were you running two households while you were doing that? Three. Three. <laughs> oh my goodness. Are you very organised? Did you have to be very organised to do it? I don't know if I was organised, I was very structured. The experience ended up lasting for almost all of last year. Um, from October to August the following year, so I don't know how many yeah. months, but it was a number of months that we hadn't planned. That you hadn't planned for. Was it both of your parents' desire to be at home throughout their lives, to stay at home as long as they could? Particularly my mother. And how yeah. old was she? 86. She was 86 when she died? Yes. So would that have involved you seeing her every day? and Nearly almost? every day. We had a roster. Yeah. And it must be demanding because I, I would imagine that by the time I reach my 80s, I'll have certain ideas about how I want things to be and how I want my life to be and how I want my home to be. So you would have had to take that into account. I had to totally accept what her wishes were. And one of those was to continue smoking, so which was, was a challenge. <laughs> that yeah. she didn't set fire to herself in, in the house. Although district health boards provide some support for people caring for relatives at home, the majority of the work falls to the families. Mum was under older people's um, care through the hospital and they provided someone to come three times a day and that was just to wash my mum and check on her, but it was very minimal. And we really needed to be a voice and oversee what was going on. So that was another stress. And uh, a lot of times our phone calls weren't answered or our emails weren't answered. So having their needs met, we were lucky that financially we were resourced to fill in some of those gaps and that they had very good home care that they'd had privately that stepped up and helped. One of the side effects of living so much longer than we used to is that the sandwich generation is getting older. The sandwiches are the generation of people caring not only for their own children, but for their ageing parents too. It used to be that they were in their 30s and 40s typically, but that experience is being pushed out now until later in life, when we typically have a full board of work, childcare and a raft of other commitments. I was at school and I was working. You were at school? <laughs> I really? was at school. <laughs> Finally went to school at the age of 59. Oh my goodness. So you're, you're juggling <clears throat> study and you, you work as well? And I work. And um, my mother liked to have the TV very loud and she also liked to stay awake for a lot of the evening. <laughs> Two in the morning, so my adjusting. tolerance would, yeah. would start to diminish. <laughs> For all of the effort involved in caring for her mum at home, Janet says she wouldn't have had it any other way. We didn't really talk about it, we just did it. I think the thought of going to a rest home is horrifying and I totally understand my mother. She didn't want that. It's a bit scary and confronting to think yeah. about it. Ageing in place, as it's called, is the preferred government policy in New Zealand and many other parts of the world. But it's not always possible. Janet's mum died within 12 months of needing full-time care. But there's no way of predicting how long relatives will need looking after. Janet and her family were lucky. 
to be able to rise to the logistical, financial and emotional challenges that are involved in caring for an ageing, sick parent who wanted to stay in her own home. I think it's an enormously difficult decision for families and for the resident, the person who goes either into a retirement village or comes to live in a care home. I think it's it's a very, very, it's one of life's big decisions and it's a huge life transition. And I don't think it's ever taken lightly. And I think I think that, that families and the residents go through enormous grief. I think families have tried so many creative ways of supporting their parent before they come into, into care. There was an occasion when Pat had come home and her health was deteriorating and I heard a voice for the first time that said, maybe this is the future. Neil and his wife Pat are both in their mid-70s. Pat has spent the last four and a half years at Elizabeth Knox. I think that was when the light bulb came on. I just looked at the the situation Pat was in with her health and the house wasn't suitable for her needs. And I just thought, oh, we've taken another fork in the road. How did that make you feel? It flattened me a bit. It it took the, the bit of the sunshine out of your life. But because... I've been on this journey since the last century with various family members, so I've had 20% of my life visiting private rest homes and hospitals. Yeah, and you don't vote for this, but it, it arrives in your injury and you can't pass the baton. Especially not when it's family or no, and you that, that, that's the case. This is the fourth family member. And, and what you realise is once... You've, your parents have gone into this phase of it has to be private care, then you step down a generation and guess who's next? <laughs> You're next cab on the rank. That University of Auckland study that I mentioned earlier found that almost half of all New Zealanders aged 65 or older have moved into residential care by the end of their lives. The anticipatory grief before he died... So knowing that he would have been, there was no, it was irreversible and that it was going to take a long time and involved him being bedridden. The grief I had about that didn't really start lifting until he died. And that, that was that, that moment of feeling that he was released from that level of distress was, um, it was uplifting. But um, then you just had, actually had to get used to the fact that he wasn't going to be around anymore. Talia ended up spending a lot of time in the rest home where her granddad lived for the six years before he died. I eventually got a job there, which was my first job, uh, as a laundress. I washed the clothes at night time. And then after about three or six months, I started working as a caregiver. And I worked as a caregiver um, in rest homes around Dunedin for... About five years. Talia started working in rest homes when she was 30, which makes her younger than average. The majority of care workers in New Zealand are women over the age of 45. With an ageing population, there's been an increased demand for care workers, both in private residences and in care homes. Their daily work includes washing and dressing people, helping them go to the toilet, cleaning them afterwards. They may also feed people, clean their houses, do their laundry like Talia did, and operate hoists and wheelchairs. 
Talia saw firsthand how hard it can be for families when a loved one goes into a rest home. You do see a lot of the initial guilt and shame stuff playing out in ways like, and even when I worked in the laundry, um, you know, guilt about putting a family there would manifest in someone coming to, you know, find their socks. And also, you know, that that sense of loss of control, you know, like I've bought my family member this new pair of socks, where are they? I don't understand what could have happened to them. Talia tried to perform small pampering acts for residents, like the time she ran a foot bath for one man. Oh, he had terrible um, foot odour, actually, so I thought, well, a foot bath will make him feel nice and um, it will kill the smell problem. For, probably for my benefit, and um, I was wash. I was so I set up the foot bath and plonked his feet in it. And he'd been a working farmer. He'd always he was he had these really big hands, and he was just sitting there with his feet in this bucket. And he just looked at me and said, "Just take me out the back and shoot me." And I, I, I just I, it made me laugh because he knew I couldn't. Miserable, right? No wonder we're scared of rest homes. I'm scared of rest homes after hearing that story. The indignity of ending up in such a place, in such a state, with your feet in a plastic bucket. It's frightening. Our aged and our injured are out of sight, out of mind. But you go through the leafy suburbs, whether it be Avondale or Blockhouse Bay, down right-of-ways and down cul-de-sacs, you'll find small care facilities. And you don't see these people when you're working because they're on a different time shift. They come out between 10 and 2. But the landscape is evolving. It was a similar experience to Talia's that led Bill Thomas to an epiphany that changed his life and is changing the future of elder care. I was going about my business in an ordinary way as a doctor taking care of nursing home residents when uh, one day I went to see a patient and... I looked at the rash on her arm and prescribed a cream and was ready to go on. And she took a hold of me, took a hold of my arm, uh, kind of pulled me to her side and said to me, I'm so lonely. And I had no idea how to answer her, what to do or what to say. After that interaction, at a rest home in upstate New York, geriatrician Bill Thomas developed the Eden Alternative, a model of care based on a simple idea. There are three plagues that account for most of the suffering of elderly people. Loneliness, helplessness and boredom. So I committed myself to the work of of trying to make it better for people like her, people living in long-term care institutions. The Eden Alternative model is based around close contact with animals, plants and children and mutual caregiving as the antidote to helplessness. Over the last 20 years, Eden principles have been adopted by hundreds of care homes across the USA, Europe, Australia and here in New Zealand. If you're wanting to move from an institutional model, it is absolutely um, the, the, it absolutely requires you to look for opportunities to engage the community. And that doesn't just mean visiting groups of school children that come in once a year to sing. It's about those lasting relationships. You know, the, the is it close, is it continuing? And do the residents grow through the experience? Or do both people grow through the experience? So we can see now that the, the lives of residents really improve when you just open the doors up. 
There are only three fully registered Eden Alternative homes in New Zealand. Elizabeth Knox was the first in 2014. It has hundreds of young volunteers, many of them overseas students who come in every day. There's a garden designed and tended by residents and there's a menagerie of dogs, cats and birds, including the chickens you can see on my Instagram feed all of which complies with Eden Principle number 5, imbuing daily life with variety and spontaneity by creating an environment in which unexpected interactions can take place. I can tell you a funny story. There's a cat here. He's the Siamese cats. And he goes around visiting different ones, but he's always in here. And he's... He'll come in and I'm sitting on the toilet um, and he gets up beside me. There's a table there and he gets up beside me as if he owned them, you know. <laughs> Betty is 97. Originally from Christchurch, she now lives at Elizabeth Knox. I love it here and uh, I have been in a couple of, of other... I won't compare. It's not fair because I think, you know... I, I they do their best for everything, everyone, and you really haven't much option when you, especially when you get old. You're there, and you've got to stay where you put. Where you, it's it's not easy for any either side. Everyone I talked to at Knox told me how happy they were and how lucky they felt to be there. Ironically, that may be the biggest challenge for the sector right now. The age of people that are often in care at the moment are such an incredibly accepting group of whatever we give them. That's the risk. That's the risk at the moment, that they won't tell us uh, when to get off. But things may change, as the demographics do. I do think that boomers are a lot more... um politically savvy and, and or that their entitlement is greater and I have worked with a lot of um, a, a different generation really of, of people, most of the people that I've looked after grew up during the depression and are used to um, a certain level of de- deprivation and also to not asking for things to be a certain way for you you, you, you make do, you put up with things but I think that the culture of rest homes will change and they, should, and they should change. They should meet the needs of the people that need to use them. The Eden model aims to address a range of fundamental needs that we all have, for meaning, for autonomy, for companionship and for stimulation. Becoming an Eden home is a journey, and the principles spreading throughout the country amount to a new and disruptive philosophy in elder care. But not all rest homes in New Zealand are run on the Eden model. I worked at a, a, a franchise that has many that is built, so all of its uh, rest homes are run on a similar model. And then I worked for a couple of religious-based um, organisations, and I would say that the religious organisations don't particularly pay their workers better, but they have a fundamentally different philosophy of care, which is based on theology and I wouldn't say that I was Christian myself, but I would say there is a place for Christian practice in rest homes. In what way? Um, because they're not necessarily... One of the um, places I worked for was worried about... They're, they're worried about dividends, paying dividends to shareholders in Kuwait. People invest in rest homes, so who are they actually delivering that care for? 
The large rest home provider that was owned by a bank in Kuwait was bought back by Kiwi owners in 2010. And a large proportion of our rest homes are run by religious orders and welfare groups. Several of the bigger operators are overseas owned though. And the phenomenal rise in life expectancies has turned rest homes and retirement villages into a growth industry. The biggest rest home and retirement village company on the NZ share market notes on its website that it's doubled profits in the last five years. Making money for your shareholders doesn't preclude giving good care. But there's a tension that makes a lot of us uncomfortable in having companies with a profit motive be responsible for looking after vulnerable people in their last years. And then there's the question of who does the actual work and how they're paid. I don't think the value of the work is reflected in what's paid. I mean, I spent my whole career in health and I suppose... At so many pretty regular intervals, the whole question of what is care worth in dollar terms comes up. And I don't think it's easily answered in dollar terms. I think there's a lot of other things come into the into the discussion, really. And I, so I'm. If you think I'm sidestepping it, I pretty largely am because I think that um, I think that it's a really hard one to say. Well, the care of an elder is worth this, and the care of a, a preschool child is worth that. Um, and I, and I suppose because I think that it becomes such an emotive discussion. Of course, it's an emotive discussion. We're talking, after all, about care. Outsourcing the care of our nearest and dearest to strangers. The first thing that actually shocked me was what going around with the other caregivers and they would kiss people awake like children. Like, good morning and right up in their face and say, hello my darling and give them a kiss. And I initially found it really patronising and odd and then I realised that they actually really meant it. The fact that this is traditionally women's work may go some way to explaining the low wages that come with it. Well, women have always been um, paid nothing to care for people. That's, you know, one of meant to be one of our defining characteristics is we're the carers. It's just we've never paid people properly to do it. I've always wondered why we don't have a paid palliative leave bill or, you know, in the same way that we do parental leave. Why don't we instead have a period of time that people can take off work to look after family members and be paid to do that? And it would not be the same as babies because that's constant from the beginning. It would be, have to be something where people could come and go depending on the need. Whether or not this is ever introduced by the state, developments in the last couple of years mean that the situation for care workers, at least, may be about to change. That political will, that will be interesting to see what happens with that um, Christine Bartlett case and how that that ruling by the uh, court is applied. In 2014, the Court of Appeal made a landmark ruling in favour of rest home workers, following on from a claim by a worker from Lower Hutt called Christine Bartlett. She's the one that's said that because she does work that's mostly done by women, which is partly based on that report that Judy McGregor did, um, Karen Counts, mm-hmm. when she went undercover in a rest home as the Human Rights Commissioner. Um, she said because it's mostly women doing this work, we're relying on their goodwill to do work for us that is of equitable value in highly paid professions that men do, or better paid that, like, I don't know, are collecting rubbish. So I think if we were to value care, you would get better care. The Court of Appeal ruling could lead to a big wage increase in a notoriously low-paid industry. 
According to the New Zealand Aged Care Association, rest home workers get an average of $15.30 an hour. That's five cents above the minimum wage. Their employers say any increase would force them out of business unless the government makes up the difference, to the tune of hundreds of millions of dollars. What might that mean for the future of care? It's an evolving landscape and the changes that are coming are going to affect, if not you yet, then certainly someone you love. In the last 12 months, we've already seen robot companion seals in one Auckland rest home. Could we end up with robot helpers as well? If that sounds a bit too much like the Jetsons, think about how much things have changed already. In just a few decades, we've built up a growing force of care workers, more than 30% of whom were born overseas. There's certain cultural differences in what they're willing to put up with, I would say. And so the larger franchises and the religious organisations will employ vulnerable migrants, often who are student, uh, they're often nurses back from whatever, from their country of origin, but they can't work um, as nurses in New Zealand because of their English. And I just find it interesting that people don't really talk about that. We don't talk about why we don't want to do this work ourselves. One advantage of having a force of migrant workers, at least in a culture change model like the Eden Alternative, is the different attitudes they bring with them. There are communities in the world where it's easier to be older. And I think that the adoption of the Eden Alternative here by our team has been aided because the majority of our team are new New Zealanders and they're still carrying an extended family model in their hearts. And so they, they know that four generations can live together and that four generations all support one another and that there's a role for you no matter what your age. Um, you know, the elders in the family will, will be looking after the preschoolers, you know, so that parents can go to work if you're from the Philippines or from Thailand or India. Of course, here in New Zealand, having a role for elders has always been a feature of Māori life. I think the idea that you have a clear role, you're not becoming redundant in society, you're moving on to your next role. All this, I think, is something we could offer the rest of New Zealand society if they could you know, take the time to think about it. And certainly some Pākehā do that well as well. But I think we have you know, cultural understandings that can add value to the ageing process. Recognition for the value of getting older and the value of elders is built into newer care models like the Eden Alternative. But whether the need is occasioned by the helplessness of childhood or the frailty of old age, giving and receiving loving care will always have an intrinsic value. Being around that much filth, like other people's waste, um, actually made me feel quite clean. And I would leave work and feel uh, quite sort of beatific, like I had been doing this great thing for hardly any money and I was in this uniform and no-one knew anything about me and no-one cared and I knew I'd been doing great stuff when no-one was looking. And, yeah, I would go home and smell like poo. Sorry. You literally go home smelling like poo, but feeling often really, really, really good about yourself.
Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.